Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is part two of the Killer Grandma episode. If you haven't listened to part one, which was episode 45, please listen to that before listening to this episode. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Finally, if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. It helps expand our listenership. Thank you so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. As a brief recap, in part one we talked about a couple from the small town of Blooming Prairie, Minnesota. David and Louise Rice had been married since 1982. And in 2018, friends that were worried about Dave called in a welfare check and found him deceased in the home having been killed roughly 10 days prior, and Luis was on the run. So we pick up this episode at the start of the hunt for the killer grandma. The first step in this investigation is going to figure out when and how, and potentially why, Dave was killed, and what steps Luisa take and sense the murder. So we'll go back in time a little bit here. Uh, David was last seen by his family on Sunday, March 11th in Wisconsin at his grandson's basketball tournament. And then Luis and him drive home to Minnesota that day. And the following day, which was March 12th, is when Luis walked into the business office and claimed Dave was feeling sick. So friends would say that after March 11th is when the text messages they sent to Dave would get replies, but it didn't sound like Dave texting them back. Uh, remember, we mentioned in episode one that Dave used the talk, or sorry, friends would say that after March 11th, the text messages they sent to Dave would get replies, but it didn't sound like Dave texting back. Uh, remember, we mentioned this in um, episode 45, part one of this, that Dave used the talk to text feature, so his texts were often filled with mistakes and no punctuation, but the texts that friends and family were getting back from Dave after March 11th were mostly mistake-free and used punctuation. And you know this case is going to come down to money, and I think they're going to figure that out pretty quickly. And the best way to track somebody, especially with money, is to look at bank records. So investigators are going to look at the couple's bank records, which show that after March 11th, Luis took two checks written to the waxworm business that was owned by the couple and deposited them into Dave's personal checking account. And these two checks that were written to the business had a combined value of just under $10,000. And shortly after depositing the checks into his account, she wrote herself three checks with the combined value of $11,000 and cashed them out around the time she left Blooming Prairie and Dave's truck. So she's able to basically transfer and turn those that $10,000 uh, that was written out to the waxworm business into eleven thousand dollars cash before she's uh, she's leaving and i don't know if dave had cut her off from having financial control of the waxworm business at this point i think we mentioned in part one about uh, there being uh, some gambling issues here and dave not being a fan of her gambling issues and having some concerns and so it's possible that she had to jump through these hoops uh, that she couldn't just you know, cash out the checks uh, for, from the business that she had to first put them into Dave's account and then write herself a check and maybe this was also to not cast so much suspicion as I'm guessing in all cases the checks would have gotten into the business account first and then she must, again, not have had access to being able to cash that money out in any way as, as she went through these multiple steps. And also, we've got roughly, I think it's going to be somewhere in the realm of 11 to 12 days before, from the time that she's believed to have killed Dave until she uh, takes off. And so in order to hide, I guess, some of this stuff too, she's doing things as 
per normal and, and at least in terms of the business stuff because again i don't know who would have had access to these financials if i'm assuming the business partner of dave also had access to this business account in some way and so he would have seen the checks going in which would have been business as normal and maybe if he's not checking it every day or if she takes out the money in Dave's account just before she leaves. Uh, she's doing it just quickly enough that the business partner's not going to notice. Obviously, she knows somebody's eventually going to figure it out, but I'm just saying she probably didn't do it you know, right away on March 12th, cash out all $11,000 for fear that somebody would notice. That would spark a check the welfare much earlier in this before she had a chance to go on the run. So... Now, investigators know that she's got $11,000 in cash and that her favorite place to go when she has cash is this Diamond Joe Casino. And if you've ever traveled on 35, uh, with this major highway, and we'll talk about it a little bit here, <laughs> through the Iowa-Minnesota border, you can't miss Diamond Joe Casino. It's this gigantic uh, casino resort hotel just off the interstate. And from where... Blooming Prairie is. I think there's something about it. it was about a 45 minute drive to this casino, so it's it's not like she has to pack up and and drive for the entire day uh, if she wants to go gamble. Although she often did, but she can you know just run down there. And this this is what made her gambling addiction so much worse. But the investigators are going to go to Diamond Joe Casino and they're going to find her on security cameras in the casino and at nearby gas stations. And this is going to be the the video that they're going to find is actually going to be her in the area on March 23rd, which was the day the officers found Dave's body. Now they don't find Dave's body till that evening, but they basically by the time they find Dave's body and they get all the security video, I'm assuming this is probably March 24th that they're getting the security video. So they're seeing her there. So she's got about a one day head start. And the security video at the gas station showed her buying food and chatting with the clerk. When the clerk was questioned, he said she asked about traveling south on I-35 and basically asking if that was a good way to get south. Now, I-35 is the main north-south interstate highway in the middle of America. So it runs from Duluth, Minnesota, which is on the southwest shore of Lake Superior, to the Mexican border in Laredo, Texas. The road is a four plus lanes of non-stop driving and a driver can make the Duluth to Laredo essentially from the northern part of the United States to the southern part in under 24 hours. And I would say the, the Canadian border, but uh, I've, I've driven the northern route several times up, up into Canada. My boys and I are big into amethyst hunting and so we've gone up to Thunder Bay, Ontario on several occasions. So the drive from the Twin Cities to Duluth is only a couple of hours but after Duluth uh, or in Duluth I should say the interstate ends and it becomes a state highway from Duluth up into the Canadian border and you actually it's a really pretty drive a lot of people do it there's some some famous landmarks the Split Rock Lighthouse uh, is along this path uh, towns like Grand Marais which is one of the uh, gateways to the Boundary Waters or Voyagers National Park which is a very uh, popular destination for for canoe enthusiasts kayakers um, but when you drive on this it's about an additional three hours or so three and a half depending on how much you stop because there's plenty of places to stop along the way as i mentioned some of these landmarks there's rock beaches along the lake that people go hunting for agates um, these little cool looking multicolored stones so if you do this the the direct drive from duluth to the border um gonna throw somewhere out there depending on traffic because it does go down to just two-lane roads at some point um it, you the drive is about probably three three and a half hours from duluth so and that gets you to the canadian border so you couldn't probably go from the canadian border all the way to the mexican border in 24 hours on this road but you could be pretty darn close and and when you think about the size of the united states that's some pretty good movement in terms of distance to cover in just a day so with 
Investigators learning that Dave had been killed by a 22 caliber pistol. We haven't talked about this yet, but the gun is not recovered during a search of the property. And that's, they're going to now know that Luis had nearly a two day head start and could be anywhere and possibly en route to the Mexican border. So at this point, she had more of a one day head start because they have her on security video on the 23rd and they're likely finding this video in the 24th and talking to this gas station attendant that said she was headed south on 35. But as I just mentioned, you know, she could go from where she is to the Mexican border in the time period in which uh, they're, they're just trying to find her. So, and if she's asking about going south, that's a concern they have to have is that she could cross into Mexico and that's going to make the search even more difficult. I'll, however, I believe they're going to find out that she, that she does not have an active passport. I think that's something we're going to talk about later. Um, but so I, uh, they're going to make the assumption that she's not going to try to cross the border. But she, still, she's going to be in the southern United States, and or, or at least that's what she told the gas station attendant. Now, is she smart enough to tell somebody this to lay a false track for law enforcement? Possibly. Uh, you never know where somebody is with their criminal capabilities. They you know, wouldn't put it past somebody to stop and ask a gas station attendant for directions, knowing you're going to be on camera, knowing you're using, um, or at this point she's still using cash, I believe, but eventually if you're using a credit card, you could set it all up to basically throw cops off in the wrong direction. You could head east or west at that point, and... You know they're potentially looking in the wrong area, but the, the long short of it is she can be anywhere in the United States at this point. So they're going to issue an alert for Luis and the truck that she was driving. And while finding Luis, that mid fifties looking grandmother with white hair and a friendly smile is going to be difficult. Finding the truck was the best hope investigators would have. And we haven't talked about it yet, but law enforcement officers routinely run plates on vehicles they're behind and this is like the state or highway patrol officers in each state do this regularly on vehicles with out-of-state plates that are traveling on interstate highways and vehicles parked at rest stops along these highways this is for multiple reasons uh, one is the main one is drug interdiction um, you know there's plenty of legitimate reasons to travel around the united states families and solo travel enthusiasts do it every year but those interstate highways are also used for drug trafficking sex trafficking uh, different things like that so these these law enforcement officers will run plates and it's something that i did as a police officer as you're driving around you've got access to run the vehicle's license plate in front of you and and you might as well do it and you'll find out information about that vehicle and the driver they may have an expired revoked suspended driver's license they may have warrants uh, at least the registered owner of the vehicle and not necessarily the driver but the registered owner of the vehicle you might get information back on and when i would stop somebody for or or the vehicle's registration might be expired and i would stop people and they they'd almost take offense to the fact that i ran their plate and i said well I, a, I can't see who's driving the car when you're behind them, especially at night. It's pitch black inside the cab of that vehicle. And all I'm doing is running a plate that's, that's in front of me, and I'm getting information that tells me something about that vehicle is why it's to stop it. So because this is a common practice in, in law enforcement in the United States, when you have this type of a, a person who's deemed armed and dangerous and the only thing you have is that she took off on the, in this vehicle the first thing you're gonna do is attach an alert to that vehicle and that's for a couple reasons one it's for trying to locate the vehicle that's pretty obvious but two it's giving a warning to other police officers that if they stop that vehicle the person in there is extremely desperate they've already killed their husband what's to say that they're not going to try to kill a law enforcement officer that stops them. So so these alerts are very important and I, I'm making an assumption here that this alert is attached to this vehicle just because that's common practice. Now there is something we'll talk about later that makes me question whether or not there's an alert on this vehicle. And like I said, we'll get into that further, but I'm just gonna make the assumption because that's their best chance of finding Luis in this vehicle is, is this alert. 
And I mentioned, you know, police officers are going to run this plate and they're going to be looking for stolen vehicles, major crimes, missing persons or child abductions when they run these license plates. But there's also automated license plate readers that are installed. And these are at places like border crossing, shopping malls, large tourist attractions. And these are cameras that are reading every license plate coming through and then running it through a database. And this is another reason why I would believe that the alert would be attached to the vehicle is if she somehow does try to cross into Mexico as she's coming through this border crossing, her license plate's going to be registered and that's going to issue an alert before she even gets through the checkpoint that, that the person driving this vehicle or at least this vehicle is involved in a major crime. And police are banking on the fact that Luis is not a very experienced criminal at least in terms of somebody who's committed a murder and been on the run before so they're banking on the fact that this this type of inexperienced criminal is going to be caught shortly after an alert like this is issued and this is they're going to make them they're going to sleep at a rest stop um i mentioned rest stops are common areas for police officer run plates so are hotels especially hotels off of the interstate where people are just going to pull off and try to sleep for eight to ten hours and then create further distance. So a lot of the times these inexperienced criminals not understanding that, you know, their plate's going to be run by at random by law enforcement will be caught rather quickly because, again, they're not going to make any effort to change license plates, change vehicles, do anything like that. Um, thinking that this as long as they create more distance they're they're staying ahead of law enforcement and all hope of that happening quickly was dashed as the days ticked by and no word of the discovery of the vehicle or arrest of Luis materialized however on april 2nd so this is roughly 11 days 10 days into the investigation a woman named Tess Coster, a resident of Blooming Prairie, stepped out of one of her rental homes in Fort Myers, Florida, and saw Louise Rice standing outside the garage. Coster was one of many Minnesotans and upper Midwesterners that snowbird by escaping the harsh cold winters by having a second home in the warmer climates of the southern United States. Coster knew Rice and had befriended her during the previous 13 years that they had both lived in the small town. Rice locked eyes with Coster and then said something to the effect of wrong house before getting in her vehicle and leaving at a high rate of speed. This made Coster think about that morning when one of her daughters called from Minnesota where the family ran a car dealership. Her daughter told Coster that a woman had called stating she was from Blooming Prairie and was in Florida and wanted to stop by and say hi at the rental property. This was not uncommon as a lot of Blooming Prairie residents would stop by and visit her mother while they were in Florida, and in fact, Coster had invited the Reeses to come down to Florida just a couple of years prior. Coster's daughter had not gotten the woman's name, but Coster was well aware of the murder of Dave Rice. As word travels fast, in this case far, in small towns, she immediately dialed 911 and found herself in the middle of a jurisdictional nightmare in which neither Florida or Minnesota lot law enforcement officers wanted to handle her report. Eventually, a couple of Lee County deputies, which is the county in Florida, which Fort Myers is in, or at least where this rental property is in, came to Coster's rental property, and they admitted they knew about Luis Rice and had of her being wanted on charges of theft and murder, but they figured she that Luis had been spooked out of the area and did not seem too eager to look for the wanted fugitive. And this is something I believe we've talked about before, but we'll mention here again. Uh, people can get very frustrated with law enforcement, and I don't blame them uh, when it comes to a, a situation like this. So from the sounds of it, this Tess Coster woman, she called, my guess is 911, which would have put her through to the local police department. And she's going to be telling this dispatcher, there's a woman here from Minnesota who killed her husband up in Minnesota. Everybody's looking for her. And she was just in my driveway. And it can be the result of a bad dispatcher or that dispatcher can try to send a police officer to it that turns around and says, yeah, so call Minnesota and let them know. Well, 
if that happens, then, and it sounds like it did in this case, then Tess Coster is going to be talking to a dispatch center up in Minnesota, probably the Dodge County Sheriff's Office, and she's going to tell them, hey, I just saw that woman you're looking for. She was in my driveway here in Fort Myers. And they're going to tell her, oh, well, that's great. Thanks for letting us know. But you need to call your local department down there and tell them so they can try to find her. And so she claimed there was this game of hot potato. And, and sometimes this can go back and forth four, five, six times until they either get through to somebody in some location that, hey, this needs to be handled. This needs to be dealt with. And, and it sounds like, unfortunately, in this case, by the time they did get somebody out there to, to do this, the deputies that showed up, according to this test coster, was just just kind of went, oh, well, you know, she's probably back on the run. There's no reason for us to really look that hard for her. It's not like she's going to stay in the area. However, that same day, which is Tuesday, April 2nd, a woman named Pamela Hutchinson arrived in the Fort Myers area. She was there to visit with a friend who had recently lost her husband and was also looking to buy a condo in the resort and snowbird popular town. The 59-year-old Pamela had divorced her husband two years prior and was enjoying her retirement years with the hard-earned money she had made over the course of a long career in car sales. Pamela was short, with light blonde, shoulder-length hair and a charming smile. Bearing a striking resemblance to Louise Rice, the two bumped into each other for the first time on Tuesday or Wednesday and struck up a conversation. Louise told Pamela that she had recently lost her husband, a true statement, but likely leaving out some key details, and Pamela was already in town to console one friend, and she quickly found another one in Louise. Pamela was supposed to join her original friend for dinner on the evening of Wednesday, April 3rd, but told her friend that she would be having dinner with Louise instead. The two were seen on video on the evening of April 3rd, drinking for three hours together before heading back to Pamela's condo that she was renting. She had planned to check out on Thursday, April 4th, but extended her stay to continue her budding friendship with Louise. They enjoyed a full meal of seafood on Thursday evening, washed down with a variety of fruity alcoholic beverages before paying the bill around 7 p.m. and heading back to Pamela's condo. Pamela's friend said she texted her that evening but got no reply, but didn't think much of it at the time. The following morning, the front desk at the rental condo complex received a call from Pamela's room. A woman on the line requested to extend her stay through the weekend, a request that was granted and automatically billed to Pamela's credit card. Later that morning at a nearby bank, a woman claiming to be Pamela Hutchinson walked up to a bank teller and requested to withdraw $5,000 cash from her account. The woman, later identified as Louise Rice, left the Fort Myers area heading north up the west coast of Florida in Pamela's white Acura sedan. She stayed in the town of Alcala, Florida on Pamela's credit card and withdrew $1,500 from some ATMs using Pamela's ATM pin. She drove to a casino in Kinder, Louisiana and played $5 slots winning a $1,500 jackpot where she signed Pamela's name and social security number on the claim voucher for her winnings. Around this time on Sunday, April 9th, a worker at the condo re resort where Pamela and Louise had stayed noticed a water leak and a foul smell coming from the condo that had been rented to Pamela. This employee asked two other guests to enter the condo with her, and when they did, they discovered the body of Pamela Hutchinson. She was dead on the floor with a bullet wound to her heart and lungs. She appeared to have been shot in her back, with a pillow used to muffle the sound of the shot. The bullet traveled through her back, lungs, heart, and aorta, and was stopped in her bra. The preserved bullet was a 22 caliber pistol bullet. Pamela appeared to have been shot while brushing her teeth, and Louise had turned the thermostat down to 61 degrees to slow the decomposition and stuffed towels under the door to prevent the smell from spreading too fast. And all of this was similar to what investigators found with Dave's body in Minnesota. But it wasn't until Florida investigators watched videos from the resort of a woman who looked a lot like Pamela leaving the resort after loading luggage from a Cadillac Escalade into Pamela's Acura that they had some idea what they were dealing with. A run of the plate on the Escalade connected the dots and suddenly officials in Minnesota and Florida were talking and realizing that Luis had struck again. Now this is... I read this a couple different ways, and again, this sometimes just comes down to the way that's reported, and that doesn't necessarily mean that's how 
the situation actually went down in one place it said that this was delayed quite a bit because they didn't have the connection right away which i find hard to believe because again i have to imagine that they had an alert on the license plate on that cadillac escalade and as soon as they ran it they would have gotten the nationwide alert that they're looking for this armed and dangerous fugitive that's driving this vehicle so again i don't know if it's reporting the facts in a way that makes it more confusing i don't know if it's reporting facts that aren't completely accurate i'm just going off what my experience would be would be i would understand that at the point in time in which they have this body in the room they have no idea that this other woman is this louise rice even when they're seeing her on on video there's not necessarily these officers in florida are going to know right off the top of their heads that this is a woman from minnesota that they're looking for for murder but when they watch the security video and see this woman pull up this escalade next to their murder victims acura load luggage into it and then take off of course the first thing they're going to do is go look at that cadillac escalade and again my thought would be as soon as they run either the plate or the vehicle identification number on that uh, escalade it's going to come back with this alert and this is the other thing we didn't talk about plates are one thing and, and license plates registration plates whatever they're called where you're from they can be changed but there's several places on the on the vehicle where the vehicle identification number or the VIN is hard placed onto the vehicle in a way that it's very difficult to remove it uh, and one of these places the most obvious place for police officers to look is in the lower right section of the uh, windshield dash area kind of the driver's side where the glass windshield meets the the dash is there's a a metal plate that you can read that has the 16 digit vehicle identification number that's unique to every single vehicle that's manufactured and so when you register a vehicle you register it by both registration plate and VIN and those two are connected but you can change the plates but you can't change the VIN so even if Louise was smart enough at some point to try to change the plates which it doesn't sound like she was she the the officers on scene would have run that vin and now running a vin is not the same as running plates uh, the the software that i used when i was a police officer at least a couple of the different softwares that i used over the years um, when you try to run a vin from out of state you had to pick a region that that vin was from because you often didn't know which state the vehicle would be registered to so sometimes you had to run that vin 15 different times because i think there was something like 15 different regions around the country it would lump four or five states together into a region and hope that you found that the vin would come back and state to state the registration systems are very different every state's going to require different things for that vehicle to be registered to include some states require you to register your vehicle insurance and that's going to show up on the registration when an officer runs it other states don't some states require, I mean, social security numbers of the registered owners uh, to show up on registrations and others don't. So it's it's kind of a, a difficult maze to navigate when you're trying to locate information about a vehicle if you don't have the license plates and you're, they're from out of state. Uh, but eventually officers should have been able to get an alert back on that vehicle, that Cadillac Escalade that would have told them, hey, you know that murder suspect you have she's somebody who's already being looked at and eventually that is going to be the case and they are going to reach out to minnesota and say we've got a case going now in florida that's going to be part of your case up there in minnesota and so investigators at this time are going to start following Luis's use of pamela's financial cards pamela was divorced i think she'd been divorced a couple years but they were able to pretty quickly get a hold of her ex-husband who would have still had access to a lot of her personal information uh, bank accounts and that kind of stuff uh, and potentially even credit card accounts from when they were together and they're going to start to be able to follow up with her um all of her card usage and they're going to see that 
um, Pamela's making, or, or sorry, that Pamela's car is being used to make purchases along the path that Luis is following. And again, Luis is, I don't want to say smart enough because of giving her credit, but she's, I guess, evil enough is probably the better, the better way to put it, to plan ahead these murders and give herself these head starts. So this murder occurred on they believe Thursday night, uh, potentially, I guess, early Friday morning, but at, at, at the earliest possibly also Thursday night after they have her on video at the seafood restaurant together. And they're discovering this body on Sunday. So again, Luis has this two to three head days or two to three day head start. And she's got access to these cards that she's using. So yes, they can follow a trail, but it's not like they're getting the up-to-the-minute reports on where these cards are being used or these cash is being withdrawn from an ATM because that all of the, the card usage and, and ATM stuff was within the first day of the murder. So they're, again, two to three days behind Luis as she's um, traveling somewhere now, they believe, in a westerly dire direction across the southern United States. And, and again, I mentioned it before uh, in... If you live in one of these states, Florida, Texas, uh, Louisiana, Arizona, especially, um, you're pretty used to this snowbird traffic coming down, usually around, sometimes it's as after the holidays, sometimes it's before the holidays, and then through kind of that spring break, that March, April, uh, the southern United States has a lot of retired aged people that come down from more snowy cold harsh climates and they have a second house uh, sometimes it's a you know a trailer sometimes it's an apartment sometimes it's a condo that they stay in for those those winter months so she's going to blend in at this time because this is still late march early april and there's a lot of not just the regular people who live there year-round but a lot of these snowbirds that she's going to be able to blend in with as she's traveling through the southern united states at this time Meanwhile, back in Minnesota, the U.S. Marshal's Office uh, started helping with the case, and that's the lead marshal of the what they call the North Star Task Force, because Minnesota is known as, as the North Star State. Uh, this, this leader of the U.S. Marshal North Star Task Force had a good working relationship with the Sheriff Department of Dodge County, which was handling Dave's murder investigation, and so he starts providing whatever resources he can early on. So while he's trying to kind of help, but in reality, they, yes, they have her fleeing interstate uh, from Minnesota to Iowa. So we now have an interstate fugitive so they can kind of help out. Once she's committed the second murder in Florida, they now have two crimes that are interstate and a fugitive responsible for both and on the run. So the U.S. Marshal's office is going to... Uh, turn up their investigation another notch and they elevated Luis Rice's case to what they call a major case status and this is going to result in a national hotline being set up and billboards were put up across the southern United States with Luis's name and picture as well as a $5,000 reward for information leading to her capture and the story did catch national attention and this is where she got the nickname the killer grandma and before long uh, not and before Sorry. The story caught national attention, and this is where she would get the nickname Killer Grandma, and it didn't take long before tips started flooding in with sightings throughout Texas. But the trail went cold south of Houston on April 8th. And again, the marshal's main fear is that Luis would try to get into Mexico. We mentioned before her passport wasn't active, but also she wouldn't at this point likely try to use her own. If she had tried to use her own passport to get to Mexico, it probably would have been during that first 24 hours where she wasn't quite sure if anybody would have found her husband yet. But now she's learned how to assume somebody else's identity. And so the marshals have to fear that as she's going through the checkpoint, there's a chance she could get through under somebody else's name and passport if she looked enough like them. But... I don't know that maybe Pamela didn't have an active passport. I'm sure that's something else they looked into, but the, everybody has to worry that 
Luis also knows that her time as Pamela Hutchinson's running out, as well as the usage of the white Acura. So, assuming somebody's identity, you know, is going to work for her for a little bit, but eventually she knows Pamela is going to be discovered, and that if she's using Pamela's information, whether it be the credit cards, the car, her name, whatever it might be, that that's going to start to leave a trail leading to her. And this is where. You know, investigators sometimes have to make some hard decisions in these cases, especially in, in terms like Pamela's credit cards. Some people would, you know, jump on and say, hey, turn it off, cut off her uh, ability to utilize these these credit cards to fund hotel stays or gas or whatever it might be. However, one, that increases the desperation level of Luis and what is she going to do if she gets even more desperate for gas money or a hotel stay or whatever it might be. And two, you lose the ability to track her location using these cards. Now, they might stop using the cards altogether on their own, which isn't something you can't control, but you have to weigh out allowing her to continue to use these cards along with the information you're getting back as a result. So at this time, officials realized anyone who looked like Luis and had an active passport was in real danger of being killed. And if Luis was able to do it and create another two to three head day, day head start, she could be in Mexico or even further south before authorities could stop her. But unbeknownst to them, Luis was actually hard at work at blending into the resort town of South Padre, Texas. And this is a town that's known for its spring break and vacation style atmosphere. It's on the Gulf Coast. Uh, so you've got warm temperatures, warmer water, and it's the perfect place for someone out of town to blend in. And it's also the perfect hunting grounds for Luis as the warm climate means there's plenty of white haired retiree women in the area. And so she had checked into a local motel under the name Donna. And again, she's wise enough to know that Pamela Hutchinson's name is, is probably at this point on, on you know, police radar and whatnot. So she's using this fake name Donna. And witnesses said she looked like a quiet old lady on arrival, but quickly changed to look more spring breakish. And this was a, a change in her clothes, her appearance, everything. So she was, she showed up kind of looking again like someone's grandma. And then, whether that's she's watching the news, and at this point again, it's it's on CNN, it's on Fox News, it's on all these major news syndicates that everybody's looking for this quote unquote killer grandma. That she changes her appearance to look much more. But I should say much younger. She's wearing like short shorts and tank tops. And then it said the front desk clerk said one day she noticed she had like a tattoo on her abdomen of, I think it was a dolphin or something like that. But again, we don't know if this is permanent. Uh, obviously, a lot of these spring break destinations have these temporary tattoo places. And we also don't know if this is, you know, something Luis had always wanted to do or whether it's something she was doing to, again, throw off people because. The killer grandma, her look, her that style, whatever it might be, people are looking for a grandma. Whereas if she can pass for 10, 15 years younger with this tattoo, and then the killer grandma doesn't have a tattoo. I again, I don't know if this is criminal genius on her part, or if this is just something that she did and didn't understand, you know, how it was helping her. And it took less than a week for Luis to befriend another lookalike. Bernadette Mathis was another single, 60-ish woman with light blonde hair. Luis cozied up to Bernadette, making small talk and striking up a friendship. Bernadette was a court reporter and didn't have many friends and welcomed the companionship offered by Luis. They shared some drinks and exchanged phone numbers and texted each other the following day. So this is, again, somewhere around... We'll get to an exact dates, but uh, I think this is around April 18th, April 19th, somewhere around there. And they shared some drinks, exchanged phone numbers, and they agreed to meet up for drinks again. However, the bartender noticed that after two drinks, Bernadette seemed extremely drunk and was wondering if someone had slipped something in her drink or she had maybe taken some medication that was interacting with the alcohol. 
And Bernadette would later say she had trouble recalling the rest of the night, but remembered being in a hot tub with Louise and seeing Louise take pills the following morning. And then they made plans to meet up again on Friday, April 20th. So I think this was the evening of Wednesday, April 18th, that Bernadette had this strange intoxication experience with Louise. But they're going to make plans to meet up again on Friday, April 20th. And the research showed that Louise had other targets in mind. She also met with another woman named Isabel Barrario. She hung out with Isabel, another woman who later said Louise seemed obsessed with Isabel. And despite Isabel wanting to leave South Padre, Louise was insisting that she stay longer and that Louise got visibly upset when Isabel only agreed to stay one day longer and then left. And the be being upset is most likely the frustration she's trying to find another target to assume an identity of and again that whether that's to escape to mexico whether she wants to go further west across the southern united states you know i can't be 100 percent on on what her plans were all police and everybody else can figure at this point is she's trying to find these these women to do what she did with Pamela Hutchinson and she's investing time and and she's she knows it's a, a ticking time bomb until police find her if she continues to use Pamela Hutchinson she, she's probably running out of money at this point so if she's putting effort into trying to befriend somebody and learn what she needs to learn from them to assume their identity and then they just leave she's obviously going to be frustrated so that's why many people believe Isabel was a target and then we're going to you know, Bernadette was a target as well. However, on April 19th, after roughly a week in South Padre, Louise planned to eat at a seafood restaurant in the town. The manager noticed her asking for a menu and talking to a waiter. After staring at her for a bit, he remarked to some of his staff that he believed she was the killer grandma everyone was looking for. His staff disagreed with him, but he was insistent. Both the restaurant and bar were full, so Louise, so Louise left but the manager followed her outside and watched her get into a white Acura, and then he called 911. And at this point, there were pictures of this white Acura out along with Luis's picture and name and, and everything uh, on these billboards and on these cable news services and whatnot. So, so the manager's not only going to see her and think, hey, I think that's that killer grandma from Minnesota, He's also going to then see her get into this white Acura. So he's going to call 911, and U.S. Marshals act on the tip immediately and responded to the seafood restaurant. The manager gave the Marshals and officers a description of what Louise was wearing, and it didn't take long for them to find her. She was sitting at the bar in a restaurant right next to the one she had tried to eat at. Marshals and officers covered all exits and then went into the eatery and found Louise sitting alone on the corner of the bar. And they took her into custody without incident and the search was over and there would be no more victims. Her close call victims had a hard time coping with how close they had come to death. And this included Bernadette, Isabel, and even Tess Coster, who realized they were all likely targeted by Louise to be their next victim. Coster, who resembles Louise in appearance, quickly realized that Louise had asked her daughter which of the five rental properties Coster was currently staying at. She could have asked about the other four if she was trying to squat at a residence and then poses Coster, but because she asked specifically for the one Coster was at, she believes Louise came to the house that day with the intention of killing her and assuming her identity, but was scared off by the chance encounter outside. As for Louise, investigators had her in custody, but they still needed to put the entire picture together, and as far as I can tell, she never spoke openly about either killing either of her victims other than to say she was sorry, and her and Dave argued and he supposedly gave her the gun and told her to kill herself as she shot him instead. And we'll, we'll talk about that. I actually found, after I wrote this out, I actually found what she said at her at her uh, pre-hearing in Minnesota. And we'll, we'll discuss that. And what we do know is that both victims were ambushed. And I believe they were shot in the back by Lewis while in a vulnerable position. We talked about dave being shot in the chest and and having that defensive wound in his forearm but if i think about it there's a good chance that he was shot in his back and then in a 
you know, a situation where you're shot in the back with a 22 caliber, you're you're not dead instantly. There's there's almost no chance unless that 22 somehow severs your spinal cord. You've still got the ability to turn around and face your attacker because it's going to take you a little while to die from that gunshot wound, and you might not die depending on the, where that shot in your back goes. But if you turn around, then at that point, you still have conscious thought and ability to defend yourself. So it's very possible that Dave was shot in the back in the bathroom, and then he turned around to put his arm up to kind of protect himself, and the bullet goes through his forearm and into his chest. And from there, you know, maybe there was a struggle, who knows, but eventually he's he collapses to the floor in the bathroom and, and he's killed. And, and Pamela is killed in a very similar manner where she's in the bathroom, police, police believe she's brushing her teeth, and Luis comes in with his pillow, puts the gun up against the pillow and shoots Pamela in the back. And the, the 22 is not a very large, or sorry, not a very loud gun in the first place, and but putting a pillow up next to it like you see in the movies, can muffle some of the, the sound of the, of the shot. And so I think she didn't have a reason. She didn't have to muffle the shot when they're on this property in Blooming Prairie and nobody else is around, but in this condo she does. But I just I think it's just proof that she killed them in the same way. And we think of bathrooms as safe places. A lot of people let their guard down when they're in a bathroom because some people lock the door other people just close the door and they just assume it's a safe place it's a place where we're going to be doing things showering bathing whatever it might be where we're somewhat vulnerable and uh, shutting that door or just being in the bathroom feels kind of like a safe atmosphere a place we we don't have to worry about being attacked i guess and this is a place that she chose to attack both dave and pamela and why she didn't kill Bernadette is unclear, but when I thought about it, it's possible she didn't have all that she needed from her yet. Then this would include like her ATM pin and other sensitive information. And it's possible her plan was to kill her on the 20th. And remember, she had actually eaten dinner twice with with Pamela before she killed her. And this may have been, again, to gain enough access to sensitive information that whether it be ATM pins, whether it be location of stuff like a passport or just enough of a who's going to be looking for you if if I kill you, how much time will I have to get away? Is there you know, do you have plans within the next couple of days to meet up with somebody that's going to call the police? All this stuff is stuff that maybe Luis just didn't have enough information. Maybe Bernadette got too intoxicated she did slip something into her drink and Bernadette got so intoxicated that she just couldn't get anything out of Bernadette or at least the stuff that she needed and so it's it's possible she had planned this second dinner and if she got enough information that evening she was going to kill Bernadette and assume her identity and after her arrest search warrants are going to be conducted on Louise her vehicles and the location she stayed at and clothing matching what she, she was seen in all the security videos as well as two handguns, which was one twenty-two caliber deemed to be the murder weapon for both Dave and Pamela, and a 9mm handgun, along with receipts and paperwork for her transactions, as well as various other incriminating items were found. After being extradited to Florida to face charges in the capital murder of Pamela Hutchinson, a death penalty offense in Florida, Louise entered a guilty plea to avoid the death penalty and the cost of a trial. On December 17, 2019, she faced a judge and refused to say anything other than answering the court's questions. For the charges of first-degree murder, theft, and criminal use of personal information of a deceased individual, Louise Rice was sentenced to life in prison without parole in order to pay roughly $40,000 in various expenses. Still needing to face charges in Minnesota for the murder of her husband, Luis was extradited to Minnesota, and after court delays due to COVID-19, she appeared at a pretrial hearing on August 11, 2020. The hearing was moved from a small courtroom in Dodge County to the local high school auditorium to accommodate all the family, friends, onlookers, and media who wanted to attend. Dave and Luis's children attended the pretrial hearing where it was assumed she would plead guilty. This allowed them to give impact statements that tore into their mother and her actions. 
They spoke of her selfishness and how her actions affected the entire family, especially her grandchildren, whom she had spoiled and garnered so much love and admiration for their grandmother. Louise would speak openly at this hearing and recounted her version of events on the night of March 11, 2018. She said she argued with Dave about her wanting to stay longer in Wisconsin with family, and that argument continued all the way home and into the house. She claimed Dave grabbed the gun from the dresser and told her to kill herself, and she shot him in the chest two times. Now, we've talked about how this doesn't line up with the evidence or method of operation of her killings, and it's more likely she ambushed him and it was about money. And another reason, I definitely think that there was some very recent arguments between the two of them about her taking money either from the business or from their savings account to gamble. Wisconsin also has a lot of casinos, so it's possible that while they were there for the grandson's basketball tournament that she either snuck away or went to some casinos and spent money she wasn't supposed to, and this led to an argument. But to me, the the story of him grabbing a gun and giving it to her and telling her to kill herself doesn't quite line up with how she killed Pamela Hutchinson. And Dave wasn't a small guy, at least, you know, he was a, he was a regular sized guy, but had some extra weight on him, uh, as a lot of 50 plus year old guys do. And he was found dead on the bathroom floor with a towel over him. And... To me, if she shoots him in the bedroom, as she claims, that would have to mean that she drug him or hauled him from the bedroom into the bathroom. And while this would be something you might do just because of the smell or because you don't want to see this body, you can close the door and then you can kind of forget about it. Because she lived in this house with her dead husband for roughly 10 days. So I guess while that's possible, I also think it's much more likely that she ambushed him while he was in the bathroom, while he was vulnerable uh, in an effort to take this last of the money that she could get her hands on and, and go on the run. Because I think he threatened to cut her off financially from everything, from the business, from from their personal stuff. Who knows, he may have even threatened to divorce her and that caused her to panic. Luis would be sentenced to life without parole, and it was agreed that she could spend her term in a Minnesota prison, not a Florida one. As part of the plea agreement, she only had to plead to first-degree murder, as the sentence was going to be the same no matter what charges she faced. With Luis put in prison for the rest of her life, people still wondered how this happened. How did a woman with so much going for her end up becoming the killer grandma and coldly and casually taking two lives? It starts with her upbringing. I purposely didn't dive too deep into Luisa's life because I needed to get through the long and complicated story of her crimes first. Luis was raised in a family with severe mental health and compulsive issues. Her mother was a hoarder to the point that Luis was embarrassed and never allowed any of her friends to come over to her house. Luis would drop out of high school in the 11th grade, likely due to the social, social issues she was facing with her family and she would marry Dave a few years later, likely as a part of an escape plan. Her mother would later be committed to a mental health institution due to her mental illness. One of her sisters, the one she stole money from as her guardian, also had severe mental health issues that made her unable to function in society, and she was also placed into a mental health institution which allowed Louise to steal the $100,000 from her. Her other sister had an adult son with substance abuse issues, and in 2019, this sister got into an argument with her son, who was drunk and 37 at the time, and kicked him out of the house. She found him a short time later laying on her driveway, and she ordered him to get into her vehicle so she could take him somewhere. After he refused to get in the vehicle, she ran him over, causing severe abdominal head injuries. When asked if the incident was an accident, she denied that it was. When asked if she did it on purpose, she told the officers she did 100% did it on purpose. While out on probation for the charges of assault, criminal vehicular operation, and domestic, or domestic assault, Luisa's sister bought some rope in the form of a clothesline and drove to a secluded location and took her own life via hanging. Luisa's own struggles with gambling and violence are likely more the effect of an underlying mental health condition. She admitted to being on prescription medication for mental health during the two murders, 
and during an episode when she went missing in 2016. And during this episode, Dave had told police that Louise suffers from depression. She had also attempted suicide in 2015 by overdosing on pain medications, but was found by Dave and was close enough but was close enough to death to be airlifted to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester where doctors saved her life after and she recovered after two weeks. And gambling addiction is often attributed to an underlying mental health condition. While I'm not a doctor, I can imagine that someone suffering from depression could play something like slots to feel the high that comes with hitting a jackpot. Those endorphins would feel pretty amazing to someone who battles depression all day long, but they also come at a cost. Slots are made to be a loss over the long play, with odds always favoring the casino and most slots having the worst odds of any gambling activity. Over the course of many, many years, a compulsive gambler at slots is almost always going to be playing at a loss and will likely never recover the amount of money they put into the machines. While some people can play a slot machine for fun and enjoy a small or big win from time to time, Others like Louise develop an addiction to the chance and extreme cases their desperation will drive them to commit violent acts. What makes Louise's case so strange is that most compulsive gamblers that are also battling depression will take their own lives as an escape from the pain of depression and the mounting debt they are facing. While acts of theft, fraud, and embezzlement to cover their losses is common, acts of violence towards others is thankfully rare. Unfortunately, this is one of those rare cases and two people that were loving life and approaching their golden years lost their lives and many others were affected by the selfishness and greed that accompanied Luis's demons. Now, I haven't done it in a few episodes, uh, the hero of the episode, because I only do it when it's fitting. Uh, I don't like to do a hero of the episode just for the sake of doing it. It's definitely as I'm researching an, a case and I recognize that actions taken by somebody go above and beyond that that i set them aside as they're going to be the hero of the episode and this episode's hero is george higginbotham and george was the manager at dirty owls which was the seafood restaurant in south padre that and he was the guy that identified louise rice even when his co-worker said it wasn't her and so even though louise couldn't eat at his place because it was full he could have easily decided not to call 911 and this is the choice a lot of people would have made because they don't want to be possibly embarrassed uh, for being wrong or they don't want to be involved. And this is, I mean, you have to imagine too, you're a complete stranger calling in some other person as a complete stranger as potentially this national fugitive. If you're wrong, I mean, you have to feel like a pretty big jerk to bring a whole bunch of police and U.S. Marshals down on this woman who's just down in South Padre, Texas, enjoying her vacation. I mean, that's that's a pretty big roll of the dice to take for a complete stranger when you just think the person looks like it. And then it's not like you had the backing of your coworker saying, yeah, you know, 100%, that definitely looks like her. You, All of his coworkers are saying, no, 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 that's not her. Now, Having the white Acura in the parking lot as he, you know, followed her out to see her get into, that probably solidified it quite a bit more for him because now it's not just the woman. It's I sold the car, the right car, the right color of car matching. So I guess you feel a little more confident in your decision making, but still, you still have to, even if you're right, then you're involved in this in this case and if you're wrong said you're you're completely embarrassed and you're going to feel terrible so but he put forth the effort to follow her outside saw the car work with law enforcement and he was able to cap help capture her before she could strike again and this is something which was likely to have happened within the next 24 hours if she didn't wasn't stopped so it's very likely that george higginbotham saved Bernadette Mathis's life in this case uh, had had he not made the decision to call 911 and had nobody else recognized her before she met Bernadette again that next evening there's a very good chance that she was going to kill Bernadette that next evening and then would have been on the run again and, and who knows how many more people would have died before um, somebody caught up with them so a big blue crime thank you to George as the hero of our episode and that is it for the 
uh, case of the killer grandma thank you for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at trueblue at gmail.com you can also find me at true blue crime productions on facebook and support me via patreon at true blue crime productions so that's it for today thanks for listening guys talk to you later goodbye